Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing rhythm desai is a veteran of the stock markets starting with almost nothing he built up capital by trading stocks and then went on to become one of the best long term stock pickers in india rhythm's career overlaps almost to perfection with india's opening up in the early 1990s The two stories are intertwined and it just adds to my fascinating conversation with him. Listen in. So uh Rhythm thank you for uh doing this and you know uh being a part of the Investor R uh, series. I want to kick this discussion off uh by uh you know requesting you to share a little bit about your background in the sense that uh where are you from you know where did you grow up what kind of an environment was it uh ultimately this is going to lead to what were the life events that led to rhythm becoming what he ultimately became, uh, became so if you could start with that please yeah so i've lived out all my life in mumbai okay uh, though i was not i was, I was not born in mumbai i was born in a rickety uh, small town called dahod Dahod is now yeah which is actually it's colloquial it's dohad is the original name okay dohad dohad means two boundaries okay because it's it sits uh, very close to the boundary of madhya pradesh with gujarat and rajasthan with gujarat okay and uh, it is now actually one of the 100 smart cities under the uh, smart city program uh-huh. so of course it's come a long way uh, in fact the prime minister just inaugurated a new uh, locomotive factory uh, with an investment of 20000 crores uh, i wow. think it was two weeks two or three weeks ago so yeah it's come of age but uh, back then it was uh, it, it's actually in a in a, uh, in a adivasi uh, uh, infested area uh, with a lot of bhil population very interesting so Yeah, so that's where yeah, that's where my parents came from, and that's where I was born, and I spent the first three months of my life there, and then I only three months. Yeah, <laughs> and I've been I've been in Mumbai ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in Mumbai, actually in good old Bandra. Okay, uh, uh-huh. which is where I did my schooling, and uh, and then uh, I went to Rupparal College for eleven, twelve. Uh-huh. That that would be a, that'd be a science college, right? Ruparel is yeah. yeah, yeah. I got I I got particularly good marks in the tenth standard, which surprised everyone, including me. <laughs> <laughs> I was not supposed to be one of the rankers, but I apparently uh-huh. did get get ranked across Maharashtra state, and then oh, wow. Ruparel Rupa, Rupa, College used to be one of those top colleges in those days. I don't yes. know what its status is now, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was everybody's aspirational college if you were yeah, a scientist i remember that then. yes uh-huh. yeah. my, my father had said you know you do whatever you want in life but just get an engineering degree wow because it it will give you a lot of foundation 
foundation in in math foundation in logic foundation yeah. in 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 hard work yeah so our thinking so yeah so that's uh, he himself was an engineer so biased uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so i went to do science and then i didn't do so well in in, in my 12th standard uh, exams uh, i was distracted by a lot of music okay so uh-huh. i didn't it didn't study as hard but you know i managed to get into civil engineering in uh, sardar patel college of engineering which is uh, right up here in bhavan's uh, campus in andheri mm-hmm. and that's where i did my civil engineering now while all this was happening um, you know back home uh, uh, stocks was already being discussed uh, because my father got introduced to the stock market in 1980 it was when uh, the then uh, which is company which is now known as tata motors but in those days was tata telco. engineering at Ta- tata engineering and locomotive company telco yeah uh, issued uh, india's first convertible bond did you say the year was 1980 80 80 okay. or 81 okay. yeah okay. yeah if, if yeah if somebody googles on that maybe i go wrong by a few months here and there but yeah. Yeah. i i i remember it was uh, early 80s and uh, and that you know my my first my first memory of um, anything to do with the stock market wow uh-huh. um, actually that convertible bond uh, instrument was brought to the market by none other than nimesh uh, kapani Uh, with whom i actually uh, started my stock market career later on i'll come to that yeah. um, but uh, he had uh, he also brought uh, the uh, special premium notes which were attached to the uh, tata steel share price shares mm-hmm. um, i don't in, i think sometime in the mid 80s uh, those mm-hmm. were all very unique products they were never uh, uh, In, in in those days the only thing that was in vogue in india was you know ordinary shares mm-hmm. uh, beyond that there was nothing that traded so convertible bonds warrants special premium notes all these innovations happened in the 80s mm-hmm. and mind you uh, for those who don't know in the 80s uh, the indian capital markets were still governed or regulated if i may use that word by the uh, cci the capital controller of india mm-hmm. uh, there, there was no sebi sebi came only in 1984 Mm-hmm. Um, in the aftermath of the Harshad Mehta scam, nineteen. Uh, so you mean you mean nineteen ninety four? Sorry, 94. I beg your pardon. Nineteen nineteen ninety four. Yeah. Uh, but you know, prior to that, it was CCI. CCI's job was basically to uh, determine or uh, approve the the share price at which companies could raise capital. Yeah. Uh, and uh, by default, it was always the par value. Par value. There was yeah. a, there was a lot of significance to the par value. Nowadays, nobody cares. Nobody even knows. Yeah, <laughs> what the par values are, but uh, yeah. uh, because that was the uh, base price at which you could uh, issue, uh, make new issuances. So anyway, so, just, so yeah, in yeah. 1980, your father was applying for these uh, convertible bonds. You were yeah, he, what were you doing those days? You were in college. I was in school. I was in school. school. Yeah, okay. I, I was twelve. I was twelve years old. I was in oh, school. Wow. Okay, and you yeah, saw that still, yeah, early education. Memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, by the mid by the mid eighties, uh, he was more actively trading stocks, um, okay. mm-hmm. and uh, I used to monitor them. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, my first stock market uh, visit, physical visit, if I remember correctly, was nineteen eighty six. I was still a teenager then. I was mm-hmm. uh, into engineering, and um, his broker used to be, I think, on the twelfth floor of the Bombay Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. um 
Kantila Lamthalal Shah. I know the name. Wow. I remember the name. I don't uh, know which. I don't. I'm not very sure about uh, the place. But if he's listening into this, then he'll probably remind me which floor his office was. Mm-hmm. So I started doing my rounds, and I got fascinated. Uh, don't ask me why, but I got fascinated, and then uh, then I came across the Bombay Stock Exchange directory. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that that was an 18 volume yeah. um, uh, publication that the BSC used to have, which would contain, I think, four pages or so, four or five pages on every listed company on the stock exchange, with a summary of financials and uh, what the business was all about and uh, mm-hmm. things like that. And I actually managed to uh, buy it. so i had the bsc directory all 18 volumes each one of them was so thick mm-hmm. and um, it would probably occupy about uh, i if i remember correctly 8 or 9 feet lengthwise mm-hmm. um, and uh, i started reading annual reports uh, and started collecting them mm-hmm. i think by by the early 90s i had uh, hundreds of annual reports uh, collected mm-hmm. and I used to read annual reports. There was no other information access. That's Remember, right. there was there was no internet. No. Uh, the only other thing that was there was business magazines, but they were quite expensive actually. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they were no quarterly results or half yearly results. They were only annual half, reports. Half, no, no, half, half, half yearly were there. Half, okay. Yeah, half yearly started yeah. coming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, quarterly, of course, came much later. Half That's yearly right. had started coming. Um, but you know things used to come with a lot of lag yeah. even uh, share prices came with a lot of lag because the the share price feed even during the uh, harshad mehta bull run mm-hmm. the normal share price feed came on pti press trust of india feed okay and there was 15 minute lag between actual share price and the feed that you got on the screen you know there was a green ticker that would come which would be the pti ticker and uh, i mean you could safely say that it was not the most reliable uh, uh place to get share prices because there was so much of a lag and uh, several times you know share prices would be somewhere else so so you, the- yeah so if you were trading in small mid cap stocks you were almost virtually in the dark because no. brokers brokers didn't have the time to go to the party eyes they used to call it no? to fetch the price the counter mm-hmm. um Uh, unless you were trading big volumes and unless you went to the counter and checked with the jobber you wouldn't yeah. actually have a live quote and even that would change by the time he came back to his own phone and then called back from the ring down to the broker it would there would be you know 3 4 minutes elapse i mean imagine <laughs> how how the market trades today versus then wow. uh, it was a, a very different uh, situation That's and right. and and then we had the seminal bhav copy Mm. Uh, which used to sell for fifty paisa, if I remember correctly, and and there was a time during the uh, Harshad Mehta bull run that uh, bow copies were in short supply, and and then uh, you know photocopies of those bow copies would sell at a massive premium, like four times the actual price. And there were these uh, there were these guys who would stand on Chajjia Station, you know, handing out uh, bow copies, and it mm. seemed to be the only place you could actually get. all the prices that traded that day okay, because yeah. because the newspapers only reported a limited uh, number of uh, yeah. shares mm-hmm. unless you went to the economic times but then the economic times kind of cost similar so yeah 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 and the, and it, it came, came the next, next day. day 
प्रोग्राम Uh, which coincided with the Arshad Mehta bull run because mm-hmm. when I joined the program, India was on the verge of a BOP crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Gulf War was about to break out. In fact, the date is first August nineteen ninety, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know that date got re-emphasized and uh, kind of uh, uh, re-entrenched because of that movie Airlift. Mm-hmm. Uh, pe- yeah. People don't realize that. the the move the movie airlift was around the whole kuwait attack by iraq uh, uh, overnight on the 1st of august and uh, in that month of august uh, if i remember correctly august 1990 we are talking about crude oil prices more than doubled in a single month and brought india to its knees because we didn't have enough dollars to buy oil Mm-hmm. so the economy was shutting down we were also in the midst of a kind of a political crisis because uh, the then prime minister vp singh had resigned uh, chandrashekhar took over as pm it happened later in that year mm-hmm. and uh, he he lost uh, the you know he lost support of the floor in 3 months and then he resigned and, and india went to elections while it was in a bop crisis seeking a bailout from uh, the imf and uh, mm-hmm. and world bank Uh, which is what happened when uh, you know when uh, narsimha rao decided that he needed a a political person to run the finance ministry because there was a lot of heavy lifting to be done with these agencies mm-hmm. with respect to the bailout and that's how dr manmohan singh became india's finance minister um, and then of course he started off with this big budget in 91 march uh, which started opening these these were the conditions that were set by imf and world bank they mm-hmm. were not they were not it was uh, not our, our choice we had to do it so you know i'll i'll come to this later but the only time in india's history since i've been following india's macro say from the mid 80s when we undertook reforms by choice was the period between 99 and 2004 and that was during the vajpayee government and now i see a return to that since 2019 mm. uh, when when this government cut corporate tax rates i have started feeling that this is you know these are these two occasions when we've undertaken economic reform by choice uh, most times india uh, india the india's political class lacks conviction about the merits of a market oriented economy mm-hmm. and is always oscillating between uh, a market oriented to a more centralized controlled economy Uh, and we have usually defaulted to the latter rather than the former mm-hmm. uh, so market oriented economy was forced upon us by the imf and world bank which was obviously godsend in hindsight because it just changed india's uh, future 
yeah. um, as we opened up our markets you know the average import tariff in 1991 again check me on this but it was 108 or 9% is probably right <laughs> <laughs> and today and today it's a single digit number wow so uh, everything uh, that corporate india did in 1991 uh, in terms of production in terms of where they sold in terms of what price they sold was controlled by the government how much cement you produced was determined by the government to whom you sold it was virtually determined by the government and at what price as well which is why a lot of these commodities had you know uh, often had very flourishing black markets yeah. because supply was so restrained but suddenly in 91 and 92 everything was dismantled and uh, and we also started uh, allowing foreign investors to invest in the equity markets in jan 93 mm-hmm. so a lot changed for the stock market uh, you know while of course uh, uh, everybody has probably seen the uh, the serial scam uh, and uh, the bull market in that period by the way from august 1990 or later date uh, no i think from from the middle of 91 to march 1992 okay mhm nine months mm-hmm. the sense the sensex more than uh, quadrupled wow okay any bull market after that pales in front of what i had witnessed with my eyes then wow. okay yeah. the sensex went from circa 900 to you know 4500 in a, in less than 12 months it was it was unprecedented i mean the way share prices went up It was crazy, and of course, later on we found out that it was because there was a lot of bank money that was getting fueled into the, uh, getting funneled into the market. But when you look back, and of course, the stock market, if I remember correctly, and I'm sure the street doesn't have the data anymore, but I was collecting this data. It was trading at 50 times earnings at the index level, okay, at the peak. Um, so the Sensex EPS was, I think, around 90, and it was trading at 4500. okay so uh, it puts into context the 33 times uh, nifty multiple at the peak of 2008 uh, add another 50% to that then you get the uh, yeah. and you get the 92 bull market peak yeah. add add about two and a half times to current market levels approximately and you get the b multiple of what you had in march mm-hmm. 92 so mm-hmm. obviously there was exuberance no doubt about it but it wasn't completely out of place because india was going through a disruptive change yeah. which would forever alter you know cash flows for corporate india yeah and um, i remember we 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 you know at mohan stanley do an annual investor summit for institutional investors and we started that in 97 uh, we're now i think in our 26th year i remember writing the preface for the 2003 event India's total market cap was ninety billion dollars. Okay, ninety billion dollars. Yeah, in two thousand three, we're now at three point five trillion. Billion. Okay. Yeah. So what happened was that we went through this very prolonged bear market mm-hmm. uh, from ninety two to two thousand three. Of course, there was a Nasdaq led uh, and ninety four also. I think India had a ninety four peak because of the FII money coming in. If I remember, yeah, yeah. It it and went. Then it, it, then it went off. It, it, it didn't. If I again 
we can check the charts but it didn't cross the 90 yeah it was it around 44 4500 something yeah, yeah. it came it came within kiss, kissing distance of yeah. 92 but didn't actually cross 92 we did cross 92 in jan feb of 2000 Yeah. largely led by the uh, new tech the tmt stocks yeah yeah mm-hmm. but but actually if you x out the tmt stocks the rest of the market was still in a bear phase yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, and that bear phase only ended in march 2003 so give or take i mean of course if you get if you start nitpicking then you'll say no 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 we had a bull market between 98 and 2000 but largely speaking the broad market went through a near 11 year bear market that mm-hmm. started at the peak of uh, 92 and therefore a whole generation of equity investors got wiped out okay which is why domestic retail did not participate in the 0307 bullmara it mm-hmm. was largely foreign participation most domestic uh, I, when i say i don't mean the smart savvy domestic investors Masses, but the broad the broad yeah broad class of investors did not participate they missed it Mm-hmm. Uh, very unlike today's situation where they are participating in the ongoing bull market in in and in fact participating a lot more Agreed. than foreign investors who seem to have lost conviction on india so yeah. anyway circling back uh, to the original point so yeah i finished my mba in 92 and then we saw this whole uh, thing happen and then i i joined uh, jm share and stock brokers in 92 june because like i wanted straight out to of college straight out of college yeah straight, straight out of gym. college yeah yeah i wanted to work for one of the nimishes yeah so one side was nimish company and the other Which side was are. nimish shah yeah but uh, uh, inam did not turn up at uh, at the college interviews and uh, on the day on the fifth day and by the way i was i later on got the gold medal from the mumbai university so oh. i topped the university for my mba but i was still unemployed on day 5 <laughs> because i was i was waiting for a, a stock broker to turn up with an equity research job which by so the way you were, was you were a, passing by all the jobs that were coming waiting for a stock yeah, broker to come yeah, wow yeah you and, so and sure. I, no no i wasn't sure i i was so sure of what i wanted to i wasn't sure yeah. that i would get hired right. but mm-hmm. i got lucky i got hired uh, of course uh, they decided to pay me about 25% of what the batch average salary was then so it was a very small amount of money but it didn't matter because i got exposure to uh, capital markets so do you recollect my... do you recollect what the first paycheck was at jm yeah yeah of course of course should i say 5000 7000 10000 1800 there you go <laughs> to all those who are listening and who, <laughs> those were the salary levels in 1992 no no those they were not their salary a little bit yeah in that range ballpark if yeah. i if i remember correctly my batch average was 7000 there were people who came in at 10000 mm-hmm. i was at the bottom at 1800 because uh, because it wasn't uh, the highest paying job in those days to yeah. do equity yeah. research in fact nobody knew what equity research was when i arrived uh, you know i started from scratch and yeah uh, i had a little bit of a background but i learned everything along the way But JM even then JM had a long history right decades even by the 90s they had been around for decades right and you were moving into this effectively a blue chip of the stock market in terms of pedigree how was that like uh yeah but uh, equity research was not the big thing I, yeah uh, because they they, yeah. they they well no they were because nimesh bhai was mostly into investment banking okay so 
broking was his father's business which of course was there but it wasn't his uh, bread and butter was investment banking mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i went to the broking business uh, in the equity research department and then uh, you know things started changing uh, along the way 18 months into this i got a bit of a entrepreneurial bug uh, and then uh, i joined uh, alchemy um, and uh, 3 years after that uh, i kind of thought that you know this is not my cup of tea i need to go back into doing this more professionally and on a professional basis and so i rejoined uh, the industry in ubs and i was a year at ubs and then moments and he made me this job offer which i am still holding on to which was about 20, now coming up to 25 years ago yeah that's a that's a big run i will talk about that in a bit but didn't jm have a joint venture with morgan stanley so is there any connection later on later on Actually, so i later. left So I left JM in uh, in the uh, post Diwali 1993, mm-hmm. and then uh, in 1999, six years later, uh, it became a full circle because then uh, Morgan Stanley went into a joint venture with JM. So wow. we became JM Morgan Stanley mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with two different companies: one into investment banking and one into equities. Okay. So, uh, do you recollect what was your first uh, investment? Where, where, uh, whatever it was, be it stocks or metal or whatever. Yeah, no, it, no, it was stocks only. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was already investing in the. My father was very kind, you know. He mm-hmm. uh, he would let me take decisions, and uh, so uh, even though I was still learning about it, but I think that helped me a lot, and especially in the in the uh, you know nineteen ninety one bull market. Uh, he somehow trusted my instincts mm-hmm. and so i was uh, i was basically buying and selling stocks uh, then already so i can't quite recall which was the first security really mm-hmm. i know a bunch of securities that uh, i traded in but i can't quite remember apart from stocks i've not traded anything else mm-hmm. in my life did you ever so I, did you buy anything and hold on to it as a like a long term investment or you i didn't have the cap I didn't have the capital. We didn't have the capital then to do that. So what the '92 bull market did was create capital. Hmm. So, so I was speculating a lot. I was hugely levered, and uh, I paid badla rates all the way into three digits, 110, 120 percent of my forward positions. Uh, I don't know how many people here know about badla rates. Yeah, but, I think uh, you should explain. Why don't you explain? It's you know, it's a nice piece of history because. You yeah, know, I came to so Bombay. Yeah. I came to Bombay in '94 to study, right? Uh-huh. And uh, and I would go and get the bhav copy just out of interest. And the bhav rate was very closely tracked, right? It was the ultimate yeah. indicator of so many things. Yeah. Just just tell so, us what so, was bhav. Yeah. So pre pre SEBI, uh, the Mumbai stock market had everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had a forward market. It had an options market. So so essentially, it had a futures and options market, but they were all off. Um, the um, official uh, the stream uh, trading, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they, um, so um, they used um, to happen uh, as as on, on the curb, right? Okay. Curbside, right? Khangi, Khangi was the word that was used. Okay, okay. curbside. Okay. Actually, trading continued well into the evening on the curbside, and the large cap stocks could always be bought post market, okay. and then the trades would be ratified the next day. Because remember, the market only traded between twelve and two. 
two hours a day yes uh, yeah and and uh, but there was trading that happened in the morning and post 2 o'clock as well on mm-hmm. the cob side so mm-hmm. so that uh, that was the then prevailing practice but yeah badla is basically the interest that you paid on your forward trades because there was group a and group b stocks group a were uh, were the uh, uh, stocks in which you could carry forward your transactions on the expiry of the settlement period the settlement period then used to be 2 weeks so within that 2 week period you could do whatever you want you didn't have to settle mm-hmm. but at the end of the 2 week period you had the option to settle via cash or stock depending on which side your trade was if you were uh, um, uh, buying something you would settle with cash and if you were selling something you'd settle with stock or carry that trade forward into the next settlement period uh, and for which you would then you know based on a settlement that would run on a saturday morning uh, there would be a badla charge basically the financiers of your transaction would be paid off uh, they would either be financing you with money to carry forward your buy trades or with stock to carry forward your sell trades uh, you would receive typically you would receive uh, 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 badla for uh, providing stock which is short selling mm-hmm. and you would pay but of course that would again depend on the market cycle yeah, and yeah, yeah. the market was very bullish um and the badla rates annualized badla rates were in well in three digits um after the so i got lucky uh, you know i managed to exit the day after the uh, sucheta dalal uh, article mm-hmm. on uh, uh, sorry the, the second day after the market opened her article i think was in on 21st or 22nd of april and the market reopened on 28th because brokers were on strike in protest of uh, the government's proposal to uh, put sebi into place mm-hmm. so sebi actually uh, when i said 94 i should have said they came sebi came in 92 not 94 mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then uh, i think 29th april i managed to get rid of uh, stock so i exited uh, very fortunately luckily with some profits and that was the wow. first capital that we built and then and then uh, you know it got preserved because i was not i was not in in the downturn the index went from 4500 all the way down to 1900 before it dropped out and before the uh, the, the next teji wave started with foreign investors do you recollect how much trading used to happen those days uh, what is the size of the market and uh you mean daily traded volume yeah yeah do you recollect no i don't i have it in a file with me but i don't remember yeah. the number that comparison would be very interesting right Uh, probably yeah, a hundred crores a day to you know, <laughs> but I gave you the market cap comparison in O three when yeah, the yeah. Sense, Sense, Sensex was at twenty seven hundred, and the market cap was in two digits. It was like less than hundred billion dollars. Yeah. yeah, so this may not be very different. I mean, at forty five hundred index, you know, the market cap may have been higher, but. not materially uh, okay. yeah yeah uh, higher so traded volumes would i think as a percentage of market cap would be actually quite less compared to today because now the market has become far more broad based and i mean the reforms that say you know just a word here you know mm-hmm. the reforms that sebi undertook through the 90s and the first decade of this millennium are seminal in nature Mm-hmm. and it often you know i make this comment to foreign investors that india's financial markets are almost at par with any financial market in the developed world mm-hmm. even though our so financial market infrastructure is at par but physical mark physical infrastructure may be 30 40 years behind mm-hmm. um, 
because a lot of foreign investors who don't know india think that our physical and financial market infrastructure are similarly aged but we are not our financial market infrastructure is very advanced sure. and it's largely because of the um, really difficult things that sebi managed to push through in those years mm-hmm. uh, there was a lo- because you know the bombay stock exchange was uh, was a coterie of you know brokers mm-hmm. who controlled it it was a club right and to break that and to uh, you know to create the type of uh, market infrastructure that we have since created yep. is quite a you know incredible thing yeah we now take we it take for granted it. yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> and and we we did suffer some of our you know learnings along the way some of our shocks yeah. uh, some of our scams uh, but each of them has led to a response and a change which has made the market a lot safer yeah. see there are two types of risks in the market right uh it, one is of course price risk which mm-hmm. is unavoidable because mm-hmm. the minute you are in financial markets you always bear price risk but then the other risk which is non price risk yep. one which you know you get scam or a broker runs away with your stock yeah. or you don't get paid money by or you, you remember you, you used to get those transfer deeds there'd be a signature yep. mismatch you never I get still have <laughs> i still have some shares which you know remained in physical because i could not get the vanda as they used to call yeah. it settle Said, yeah. Okay, so so signature mismatch was a very common thing. Not yeah. only that, physical share certificates were stolen. I was also uh, subject to one such episode where, in transit, my share certificates got stolen. Wow! And the the person who stole the certificates transferred them to uh, to someone else. Whoa! And and then i went to the company to say that how did you transfer this because there is no way the signature would have matched mm. and really the company had no answer to this and uh, so a lot of these things are now in not so non price risk is close to zero yeah uh, because of you know all the massive reform that we have had in the last 20 years or so so uh, you mentioned your father was trading in the 80s you were mm-hmm. trading and you know kind of building capital if you will uh you at heart you know what is whose rhythm are you a trader are you an investor do you do both no 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 now i am only an investor i actually i actually recommend to people not to trade so which was your I, first I, investment tell me your first investment so uh, forget the trading days whichever you can recollect along the way a stock where you said you know this is or uh, whatever asset it was so so i i would i would hesitate to go into individual names but yeah. uh, it, it was a mid cap company uh, which i still continue to hold um how so many years do mo- you hold mo- yeah i'll tell you so most of these investments happened post 93 okay. so when the markets corrected in 93 i started investing Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i still hold on to all those investments uh, we are what now almost 30 years and uh, uh, these companies are now paying me dividends which are greater than the price at which i bought those shares so my uh, dividend mm-hmm. return on initial investment is in excess of 100%, 100%. i get my capital back every year and i've been uh, and it's been happening for quite a few years because these companies have grown uh, you can only experience the 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 miracle of compounding over that time frame mm-hmm. uh, any shorter time frame and compounding doesn't happen mm-hmm. you may get mm-hmm. lucky sometimes stock prices can do you know funny things and they can go up 5 10 times in a very short span of time 
बट रियल वेल्थ इज ओनली क्रिएटेड बाय लॉन्ग टर्म इन्वेस्टिंग एंड आई कीप टेलिंग पीपल दैट यूल हार्डली फाइंड एनी ट्रेडर हु हैज बिकम वेल्थी यूल फाइंड मेनी इन्वेस्टर्स हुम वेल्थी because all the money that investors all the wealth that investors make comes from all the wealth that traders lose right it's yeah. a zero sum game yeah. in the market that, that, I mean, that, that thought is worth repeating can you repeat that once more <laughs> well yeah well it's it, it's a it's a philosophy it's not yeah. really mathematically provable uh, yeah. but all the wealth that investors make comes mm-hmm. from the wealth that traders lose mm-hmm. it's very hard to take away money in trading um you kind of lose money in the end mm-hmm. unless you get lucky like i did but investing is very hard to lose money mm-hmm. unless you're really bad uh, so and in fact uh, uh, i think the most difficult thing in the market is to stay tied and do nothing yeah and that's where the money compounds yeah uh, which is why which is why not looking at stock prices is a is a very uh, very good thing yeah you know warren buffett's been saying for years he sits on stock and cash he was sitting on 150 billion dollars all these years yeah. didn't do a thing and now look how yeah so doing. rahul you know the the, the thing about uh, the reason why equity investing is difficult is is only because of this yeah. is that you see live prices and live prices have a massive psychological effect uh, like look at the market of the past few days mm-hmm. it's so difficult for people yeah. to just sit there and do nothing Mm-hmm. right most people would think that you know let me get out of this because this is going to go down another 10 20% yeah. and i'll come back at a later stage and if you do that in invariably you're either going to be out of it yeah. and never come back yeah. uh, or you know you're going to end up making a mistake so the more often you trade the more mistakes you're prone to making mm-hmm. because in any case there's an element of luck involved here yep uh, i keep giving this example uh, about how do you determine the quantum of luck in any activity so the quantum of luck is determined by how uh, deliberately you can fail so think about a carpenter trying to build a table it's very mm-hmm. easy for the carpenter to fail all he has to do is to cut one leg short and uh, and the car- table will not stand properly and he has failed so it's a 100% skill job it's a 0% luck job there is no sk- there is no luck required in carpentry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh if you move the uh, perspective to say cricket and somebody deliberately trying to get out in most cases that person will succeed there will be these occasions when that person will not succeed mm-hmm. so there's an element of luck but cricket is still largely a game of skill exams this is a very good one can you deliberately fail at exams 100% 100% yeah, because all you have to do is go to the paper and not answer any question mm-hmm. you give a blank sheet back and yeah, you will get zero you marks fail. you're not going to pass yeah, yeah. so so the role of luck in exams is zero mm-hmm. the reason the reason why people think there is a role of luck is because they don't go fully prepared mm-hmm. because because they they use uh, a law they use probability to decide what pages they're going to skip what to start yeah yeah what to start yeah. and that is why you ex- yeah that is why you expose yourself to luck. but mm-hmm. in stock market trading trading not investing mm-hmm. uh, try try losing money deliberately i've run this experiment with my team members over the years and invariably you know most people come up and say i am very very sure this stock is going to go down in the next two months Mm-hmm. and 2 months later the stock has gone up mm-hmm. most people fail to lose money deliberately in the stock market on a trading horizon 
okay uh, mm-hmm. so so that is the problem with training is that you get exposed to luck and uh, and that's why it is so so much harder to win that game mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. investing where i think you disintermediate luck as soon as you extend your time horizon and take it to you know longer horizons and then if you've done due diligence and if you have invested at uh, a reasonable price then i think you will come out good yeah so you buy companies yeah. with reasonable uh, people and uh, you know a reasonable business and a reasonable price you don't actually have to buy uh, the best companies in the world at the lowest prices uh, that's not required actually give it time i guess that's the biggest differentiator right if you do you can buy the right company at the right price with the right management but if you don't give it enough time and if you're seeing the live prices you're in trouble but yeah. if you can be like all the investing greats if you just sit on it and allow them to do their thing the probability of you succeeding just keeps growing with time i guess yeah that's that's why i think this you know ongoing uh, boom in systematic investing is uh, such you know such a right thing for investors to do mm-hmm. uh, because if you invest every month you disintermediate yourself from any particular price yeah and if you hang in there long enough the results will be quite good mm-hmm. yeah yeah so uh what what's your uh, approach to investing and I'll, i'll tell you why i'm asking you this a couple of years ago or a few years ago when we spoke uh you spoke a lot about momentum uh i know that you recollect that you mentioned about uh, uh, that you're starting to study or uh, you you're tra- starting to see merit in momentum so i'm just trying to understand uh from you uh what's your preferred approach of picking a stock so the momentum uh, conversation would have happened in some context which i can't recall now but uh, mm-hmm. the thing is that if you look at various style factors in the market momentum is a persistent winner mm-hmm. and and the logic behind that is that something that's winning continues to win until it stops winning yeah so there can be very sharp reversals in momentum Mm-hmm. but if you do a if you if you if you put it into a basket of stocks mm-hmm. okay with the highest momentum mm-hmm. all may not fail at the same time and uh, you know these are some of the uh, inefficiencies that exist in the market uh, uh, since we all think uh, you know we are all rooted with this efficient market hypothesis mm-hmm. the markets are not efficient because because the fact is that the assumptions that we make in theory don't mm-hmm. actually work in practice mm-hmm. so markets are far from efficient having said that um, you know the price is still king and the markets don't go wrong very often uh, they are right 90% of the time so if you disagree with the market you need to go back and check your own assumptions uh, and you have to be very very sure that uh, you want to disagree with the market is usually the market uh, you know is consisting of you know the inputs from multiple number of people yep. running into hundreds and thousands of people yep, 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 yep. and doesn't get it wrong if i look back on the last 30 years uh, you know the market got it wrong in the arshad mehta crisis it got it wrong in the nasdaq bubble it was wrong in 2007 8 and that is about it mm-hmm. okay it may have been wrong in 2003 uh but you'll see all these are major inflection points mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis uh, the market doesn't get it so bad 
um, as as uh, we uh, when we express opinion tend to believe mm-hmm. so that was i think the context of momentum investing style uh, you know i think you're looking as i i've already revealed that you know you're looking for reasonable businesses mm-hmm. obviously you want to have a business with a reasonable moat but no moat is permanent uh, and moats will come and go so you have to keep a constant watch on that um, you want to buy uh, businesses with good people behind them mm-hmm. i think that's the most crucial one mm-hmm. uh, because ultimately if the people are not good uh, then good votes will also waste and if the people are not good the chances are that you may uh, you know you may suffer from poor governance okay. price you know i'm not so fast about price actually um, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's something cha- it's something charlie munger actually i think uh, taught warren buffett warren buffett yes because buffett came from the graham school he was actually a student of benjamin graham mm-hmm. but benjamin graham's era was post depression mm-hmm. where cigarette butt investing was absolutely possible yeah company there were stocks that were trading less than the net working capital on balance sheet mm-hmm. today i don't think you'll find such mispricings anywhere in any market in the world uh so it's so hard to deploy large amounts of capital if you're looking for such mispricing maybe small amounts you'd still be able to do it but you'd hardly get market caps which are less than net working capital okay yep. it happens sometimes but you'll have to be very very patient and then you know as i have observed you know when when stocks are trading at so called deep discount to assets on balance sheet usually there's a problem with the business Uh, yeah they usually the the value value traps what they call in technical language right exactly yeah. exactly so there it's it's not like you're getting stuff free so it goes back to the you know the market is is pretty good at uh, discounting yeah. stuff yeah. so it, it doesn't no. throw opportunities every now and then so price i'm a little less fast up fast fast about but of course if you're paying too rich a price then you have then to you be have prepared to for you no know, you have to be prepared for suboptimal returns for a while Yeah. because you know the market will uh, you know the earnings or the cash flows will have to catch up with, uh, with the price so uh, <laughs> this is what uh, buffett and uh, buffett says now right you pay uh, is better to pay a fair price for a good company than to pay a good price for a fair company the world yeah, has changed right yeah yeah that's mm-hmm. the that's the munger uh, yeah that's what munger taught him that's right yeah yeah, yeah. that's what when he, munger became his partner that's what he um, uh, changed in, in buffett's yeah. thinking you know buffett returned capital i think in the late 60s mm-hmm. uh, I, i don't know if you've read this book uh, by ed thorp his biography um, in that he refers to this dinner that he had with warren buffett who had just returned capital to shareholders okay. and uh, after that dinner ed thorp tells his wife you know this guy that we just met he's going to become the richest man in the world he's that smart wow mm-hmm. so of course uh, that time warren buffett was not known to anyone but when charlie munger came in i think he shifted his thinking process now price what is price you know that is i think something that we need to understand mm-hmm. because most people uh, think that valuations are you know p ratios and price to book but you know i i i keep telling people that price to earnings and price to book is nothing but price itself uh so you can quote the share price of a company in absolute rupee terms so this is 1000 rupees or you can say it's 15 us dollars or you can say it is 20 times earnings mm-hmm. uh and there is no information contained in any of these three of mm-hmm. which is of value to me 
Uh, whether you say it's 20 earnings is just a currency like rupee and dollar it is not an indication of valuation mm-hmm. valuation is only when you are able to assess what the future cash flows will be and then discount them at your expected rate of return and that's when you arrive at value now it's complicated it's difficult but it's not impossible and the approach that i have is to uh, is to figure out what's in the price rather than try and assess fair value so let's see what the share price is currently telling me about where future cash flows are going to go uh, and if those future cash flow uh, mm-hmm. assumptions embedded in the share price don't look outrageous then i seem to be buying some business at a reasonable price if they look outrageous and they look like you know uh, the company's cash flows will exceed some benchmark that you may have in say 5 10 years then of course you are not uh, buying it at reasonable to a, price to a traditional value investor that's like committing harakiri right you're working it backwards and seeing whether the price is telling you something and that something is actually reasonable right i yeah, think the typical value investor would stick to his own standard principles and then come to a price and then see okay market is 10% high i'm not going to buy it no but it's the same thing so no i don't think uh, that's it's the same thing it's it's value investing it's a easier approach to uh, estimating cash flows mm-hmm. estimating cash flows uh, can be uh, you know subject to a lot of errors mm-hmm. uh, whereas uh, uh, figuring out what is implied in the share price is subject to fewer errors so mm-hmm. i think it's the same thing in my view it's not different actually it's mm-hmm. just the approach yeah and of course you want to focus on businesses that are generating return on capital on a sustainable basis above cost of capital because if they, they if that's what they are doing then they will not come back to you to raise equity mm-hmm. and uh, usually totally. those business yeah those those share prices tend to do the best in the long run uh, businesses that need to raise equity capital from their shareholders uh, to grow their businesses you know eventually struggle to deliver uh, superior returns on capital so mm-hmm. so i think that that's you know that's a straightforward approach uh, uh, it's not so straightforward as it seems now in the midst of all this i must say that uh, you know macro and politics play a pretty big role mm-hmm. which sometimes mm-hmm. a lot of stock investors tend to ignore but um, macro and politics can alter a business's uh, future uh, very quickly uh without notice and uh, therefore i think uh, stock market investors need to have a keen eye on the macro and and the politics mm-hmm. uh you know for example right now uh, you know there was a seminal shift in the government's uh, uh policy in september 2019 uh hitherto for the previous 13 years or so we were pursuing a policy of lifting uh, wages in share of wages in gdp Uh, with uh, with the idea that higher wages will trigger higher consumption and higher consumption will trigger higher growth but we were not getting that result because uh, we were essentially uh, we ran up high inflation as a consequence and then to curb inflation we kept real rates very high mm-hmm. in 2019 the government said let's switch this and go back to where we were in 1999 which is let's try and lift the share of profits in gdp Mm-hmm. if we do that companies make more money they will invest when they invest they'll create jobs when they create jobs they'll create wages wages will flow back into consumption and into more investments and we will mm-hmm. get uh, more sustainable growth now such a shift in policy has got huge implications for 
capital owners, which is basically people in the stock market, because suddenly the government has said, "I am now going to favor you over Pro the business. labor class," mm-hmm. and that is exactly what happened. Which is why India has done so well through the pandemic on a relative basis, mm-hmm. uh, and continues to do well on a relative basis despite so many upheavals that are taking place in the world. I mean, India is amongst the best performing stock markets this year. Yeah. and if somebody had said at the start of the year that you know we're going to get a war in uh, in uh, ukraine and and oil prices are going to jump up like this and uh, what do you think you know most people would have said india is you know indian stock True. markets is going to go down but they didn't uh, of course there are other reasons as well but uh, there is a there is a shift in india's uh, policy approach so policy plays a pretty important role Yeah, uh, governments can destroy profitability by moving import tariffs or changing export duties or uh, you know uh, other policy decisions pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, I find that in my normal conversations, not with institutional investors but with uh, individual investors, uh, there is a lack of regard towards uh, policy and politics, which in my view play a pretty uh, important yep. role. Um, you know for example i'll take you mm-hmm. back to 1980 mm-hmm. when the us was facing hyperinflation and the their fed governor paul walker against all advice decided to lift short term rates into double digits and that completely altered inflation dynamics in america for four decades uh, and and started a wealth creation uh, uh, campaign mm-hmm. which you know has been unmatched in the history of the world mm-hmm. um, and of course i'm make simplifying all of this but you know there were a lot of other factors but you know the then president ronald reagan also did another thing which is he allowed 401k plans which are retirement plans in the us to invest in equities for the first time in 2015 16 we went through very similar shifts okay mm-hmm. we had a new legislation which mandated the rbi to target inflation and run uh, positive real rates and we also had the government allowing provident fund and uh, and uh, national pension scheme to invest in equities which was not allowed in the yeah. and that's changed the dynamic of domestic risk capital totally the, mm-hmm. the risk the risk capital that's coming from domestic sources today is uh, is an outcome of these two uh, policy decisions that happened in 1516 you know so um, so the, all analysis of company level uh, cash flows has to be done in this backdrop yeah it's uh, so uh, you know i'd like the way uh, you you explaining it to us and uh, you're telling this as uh, you you are you're able to explain it very well to us but i hope uh, uh, the viewers and the listeners are getting the impact of this because when you talk of a mindset shift in the government from pushing wages higher to actually becoming pro business and you know uh, the trickle down effect if you will right uh, when you talk of investing in equity when the whole decision was taken that a provident fund could invest in equity there was little bit of noise and i think people forgot right now i don't even think the newspapers are quoting how much money is going or maybe they quoted once in a year or something so you mentioned something earlier in the podcast and you said that uh, india's reforms were thrust upon us but only there were phases one was the vajpayee years and one other recent years where we are doing something deliberately and trying to move forward given all this context that you see and all these big changes that you are talking about how are you looking at india from a 5 10 15 year perspective what how do you see us 
like doing in the next 5 10 15 years i i am very bullish okay mm-hmm. because i think we have uh, we have found a few solutions mm-hmm. which uh, i think uh, will go a long way in fixing this com- country's problem so let let's talk about uh, the pyramid okay mm-hmm. so I- india suffers from a very bad pyramid which is we have very very many poor people at the bottom of the pyramid uh some estimates are that one quarter of this country's population does not get a dinner okay i don't know the exact number but there are some estimates so it's you know we have some we have some of the poorest people on the planet okay forever governments have tried to service this uh lot by distributing free grains by distributing uh, free stuff yeah it never reached it never reached them Mm-hmm. because from the top to the bottom there are scores of middlemen who basically extracted their uh, their commission and what reached the bottom was always very little and as a consequence we did not make much progress and we wasted a lot of taxpayers resources through the years i had done some calculation a few years ago in the preceding 30 years we have spent half a trillion us dollars in subsidies wow and and frankly i don't see it in yeah. in in in, in, no in economic yeah. in economic progress mm-hmm. the the aadhar you know technology has totally changed it mm-hmm. and when when nandan nilikani worked on it i don't think people understood its implications mm-hmm. uh, but today we have the direct benefit transfer program which is done through aadhar which has i dare say reduced leakages in government social programs by a factor of 99% and as a consequence a lot of the taxpayers money now is reaching the people that ought to be receiving it now you know in the in the aftermath of the depression kenneth arrow a famous us economist had said that uh, if you're trying to and i'll give you the example of usain bolt okay so if you're trying to run a 100 meter race with usain bolt there's no way you're going to win that race mm-hmm. correct but if someone says you know okay you do the race we'll put you 30 meters ahead of bolt yeah you're still mm-hmm. going to lose okay mm-hmm. bolt is going to beat you but you know you're going to have an interesting race yeah right mm-hmm. so that is the idea of social welfare which uh, kenneth arrow had come up with okay mm-hmm. even in a in a in a pretty determined capitalist society like the us that there are a few people who are disadvantaged uh, because they are just born in the wrong place at the wrong time and how do you how do you create equal opportunity for them mm-hmm. and i think this is i think what we are about to see more equal opportunity for people in the country at least in terms of access to economic resources mm-hmm. via government transfers and this could have a seminal impact on on india's future so that's one the second thing is i think the geopolitics globally are shifting because india is you know arriving at the stage now with a very large economy at the end of this year will be the world's fifth or sixth largest economy would have overtaken britain mm-hmm. uh, we just overtook france so we'll be fifth um, and in the next 3 4 years we'll will you know will go into the top 3 so it's not a small economy anymore uh we sit in a in in a in a situation where a lot of the western hemisphere wants to be in alliance with us mm-hmm. and uh that changes uh, you know the uh, the importance that india has in in the power ladder mm-hmm. and it 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 
it has a huge impact because what will happen in the next few years is that a lot of companies will want to set up manufacturing facilities in india we're already seeing this big services boom that's taking place because companies want to outsource stuff to india and and india as a consequence will accelerate in terms of growth yeah. so when i join these two uh, things i think uh, we are looking at a pretty and then of course the natural progress that we are going to have as a consequence mm-hmm. of uh, a young uh, the change yeah the changes that have anyway taken place over the last 30 years yeah uh, they should not be underestimated by any uh, stretch of imagination i think uh, you add all this up and the future looks very bright no doubt there are risks out there there are there are plenty risks there are always risks you know we have geopolitical risks on our border we have uh, the potential of uh, of political uncertainty we have uh, you know other risks you know like oil while we transition away from oil and all those risks are there and that will produce volatility along the way mm-hmm. but there's a fair chance i think that we will arrive in the next 10 20 years as a as a much larger economy and a much larger stock market than we are today yeah, yeah. uh you spoke a little bit about risk so uh what what keeps you up at night what worries you the most i think keeps me up at night it was almost good huh? no no nothing why should i get bothered by these things but anyway so for, for stock market yeah stock market investors there are always going to be risks mm-hmm. and there are always going to be unknown factors and uh, i'm not going to be able to explain those because i don't know them myself yeah. right how do i know what risks are going to come but i can kind of guess what i think is that what i'm guessing is already known to uh, people mm-hmm. uh, so you know but you know they could come up and play uh, around and and create volatility which we have seen yeah. in the past so risks are always going to be around uh, they'll never go away that's what stock market is i think knight frank i think it was in 1920 or 1921 he has written this superb book on uncertainty versus risk okay mm-hmm. and in that he has said what is profit so i will not go into uncertainty versus risk which is technical in the sense that risk is something which can be quantified uncertainty is something that cannot be quantified simple okay mm-hmm. so you can attach probabilities to risk you can't to uncertainty because it's uncertain what is profit so profit comes from uncertainty Uh, so there are hmm? yeah so uh, there hmm? are entrepreneurs who are willing to deal with an uncertain future and when they succeed in that they generate profits profit. ah. so if if i took away the uncertainty there will be no profits left so uncertainty has to be there risk you know i'm i'm not going to use, use the word risk because night frank will say risk is something you can you can arbitrage okay mm-hmm. R- risk risk is something that the option markets actually will give you a price for mm-hmm. and you can actually offset that but uncertainty is not something that the option markets will ever be able to price and profits only come from uncertainty so it is but natural that there will be uncertainty you need it the day you feel that there is nothing uncertain you rest to sure there is no profit left yeah so nothing to lose your sleep over for sure okay <laughs> you you spoke of a lot of names uh you know uh, you you're obviously very well read you you've seen all this stuff is there any person individual investor who's who you would really admire and who's had a big impact and if you can probably share you know what was the impact and how it's helped you 
see uh, lots of people actually i think will run out of time but amongst the contemporary people uh, naval ravikant i think is uh, mm-hmm. is one of the smartest guys on the planet mm-hmm. so he's certainly somebody that i you know try and stay in touch with his views mm-hmm. uh, nasim taleb is another one who's he's, he's another smart guy yeah mm-hmm. uh, and uh, i think uh, he's somebody you want to track uh of course uh, you know now charlie munger is giving fewer and fewer interviews but whenever he drops his word of wisdom you want to catch on it that's right because he is back home we have some really smart people i think nimish bhai nimish shah mm-hmm. i think he is the quintessential investor that everybody wants to be mm-hmm. long term really long term uh, investor very fundamental mm-hmm. so but again unfortunately he never does any press interviews so mm-hmm. I think the last time we did a press interview was in December 1991. Oh, wow. really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he doesn't. But but if you get the good fortune of interacting with him, then I think it is. Uh, wow. His yeah. his entire team, I think, is really right up there in terms of mm-hmm. investing. Mm-hmm. No, there are you know I I I'll actually be unfair because you know I'm I'm That's sure I'll I mean. leave yeah. out yeah there leave out names. There are so many people who. uh drop uh, you know with pearls of wisdom along the way mm-hmm. uh there's no dearth of uh, wisdom out there mm-hmm. uh, so but so, but the, yeah. yeah but the thing is that you have to uh, uh, create your own wisdom because if if it was all contained in books then uh, then we'd all be very smart and we, there'll be nothing uh, to do after that but the fact is that books you know do not really impart wisdom only experience does experience does yeah that's well said uh okay here's a scenario so uh, you're married mm. right so uh, there's a there's you know we've been through a lockdown and you know your wife's been probably saving up all the cash etc etc and she comes to you and she says rhythm i i saved a crore of rupees over these last couple of years what should i do with it what would be your advice spend it spend it spend on handbags <laughs> on shares <laughs> on 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 gold where no see my instinct is always you know invest in equity markets so i'm an equity guy i don't i don't do anything other than equities so you so yeah the, you know that's that's something that uh, does that preclude other alternate ideas or do you believe that this is this is the best idea and that's why you are uh, equity see, market there's some research out there which says that in the long run a cockroach portfolio works the best a what portfolio cockroach portfolio a cockroach so, portfolio so, okay. yeah so so i don't know if you know Not the best imagery the but cockroach, yeah <laughs> the cockroach, cockroach is one of the most uh, versatile uh, survived the forms. longest right so, yeah yeah, it, yeah a, a cockroach can live off the gum on the back of a stamp okay okay and uh, it will cockroaches may not die in a nuclear attack mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they they are pretty resilient okay uh, like crocodiles they mm-hmm. they are amongst the oldest living things on this planet so they mm-hmm. have some ability to survive mm-hmm. so so that's why cockroach portfolio does it have ability to survive right. so mm-hmm. that is usually uh, 25% equities 25% gold 25% bonds and uh, real estate think, uh, 25% real estate No, I think twenty five percent cash. Okay, cash. so yeah, so that's stocks, how stocks, bonds, bullion, cash. Yeah, because because it should be tradable, right? Property is not tradable. Yeah. So that's why, yeah. So property is a separate thing. So, um, 
should not should be easily tradable sorry i shouldn't say property is not tradable not easily tradable okay so that portfolio tends to outperform uh, or rather uh, on a risk adjusted basis which is uh, here risk is measured as volatility i have a problem with that measure of risk but uh, but nevertheless uh, that's mm-hmm. you know what people say but uh, that's not my approach because uh, i've never been convinced about gold and uh, i may be uh, you know see i'll tell you about gold so i disagree with warren buffett on this point at, at least what is stated of his view of gold in the in in the media uh, so i i it comes to me as a second hand view i take it with a pinch of salt because there may be some distortions but mm-hmm. you know he says that if you put all the gold of the world then it will occupy a baseball pitch and then what can you do with it mm-hmm. just look at it maybe touch it Mm-hmm. okay whereas whereas i carry all this uh, you know i own i with the same gold like in own 100 exon mobiles and own all of agricultural land in america and still have some cash in my back pocket to do some other shopping mm-hmm. so i can supply you with all the food and energy needs that you need right mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that's fine but gold is not an asset class that's my submission okay to me uh, by definition an asset is something that yields a cash flow Mm-hmm. so property is an asset because it yields rent rent yeah stocks stocks are an asset because it yields dividends bonds are an asset because they yield interest or fixed deposits are an asset because they yield interest interest yeah. gold yields nothing mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. gold is not an asset it should never be compared with stocks mm-hmm. gold is at best store of value it's it's it used to be a medium of exchange um and uh, you could say it can be used as a unit of accounting it's a very powerful unit of accounting mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you should express your wealth in ounces of gold yeah. how many ounces of gold you owned in 2000 how many ounces of gold you owned today mm-hmm. it's a very reliable unit of accounting it's better than uh, using currency but mm-hmm. beyond that gold is not an asset and uh, you know this is a similar thing in the current modern world is bitcoin Mm-hmm. bitcoin is not an asset because bitcoin yields nothing maybe it does in the future yeah uh, bitcoin may start i don't understand bitcoin fully but it may start yielding something but gold doesn't yield anything so so to my mind actually assets are basically bonds cash equities and property and then you know the problem with property is that it is uh, very difficult to trade Mm-hmm. and until until vera happened in india it was not an asset class that uh, you know was uh, very uh, too much accessible yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and the problem with property is that it's very concentrated because mm-hmm. you can't have a diversified portfolio you can't own 20 different houses the ticket yeah. sizes are too large mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. even for the biggest investors so uh, that's you know those are some very big deficiencies in property as an asset class a uh, cash you should always have because there's always a rainy day and a yeah. and an attractive opportunity so i would not dispute that uh, why would you own a fixed deposit and uh, and uh, why would you want to own bonds because i think you take risk anyway with bonds and people have learned that the hard way you know companies unless, unless you're buying bond. treasury bonds of a you know just a risk free rate i guess yeah even that comes with a lot of risk because at the inflection points with interest rate cycles you get great volatility you can of course yeah. hold to maturity but then mm-hmm. will you will you earn a return which is ex- in excess of inflation because if you don't Yeah. then you have just reduced your wealth yeah so yeah. when i compare uh, equities with the competing asset classes mm-hmm. you know i i kind of conclude that equities is still 
you know, the best. Then, of course, there are people who remind me of Japan. Yeah. And, you know, that is one lesson of history. That whether it's the exception or whether it's going to happen again, we don't know. So, you know, when you mentioned this 25, 25, 25, 25, it reminds me of a conversation. And we've, I think, spoken about it in this podcast in the earlier issues as well. Uh, Mark Faber mentioned this to us. He said, in his experience, the best allocation is 25, 25, 25, 25. He said 25 real estate, 25 stocks, 25 bullion, 25 cash. I said the equal allocation works the best. Don't try and tinker around too much. This is what works best for him. And I guess in their case, the real estate is a little more fungible. And uh, probably you can get exposure via proper REITs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what he meant. He didn't say it, but maybe that's what he meant. Yeah. Yeah, but when you buy, yeah, so REITs are a proxy for bonds. So mm-hmm. you could buy REITs as a proxy for bonds and then uh, you're buying yeah. the same for, right? Then it's the same cockroach portfolio if you're buying yeah. REITs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, so that, yeah, uh, yeah, otherwise, property is a little harder to access in, yeah. in, this, yeah. in this type yeah. of a portfolio. Yeah. So you spoke about experiences, right? Wisdom comes from experiences. Tell us one or two such experiences that really had a big uh, uh, impact on your life. Or oh, tell me one, you know, since we're running out of time. See, was, I think, it, was it meeting Mr. Nimish Kampani in the early 90s and he telling you something? Was it meeting? <laughs> or what was it? Mm-hmm. Again, I'll do injustice to a lot of people who've given me a lot of good advice and mm-hmm. wisdom. But out of my own experience, uh, I think two things I'll say. Mm-hmm. So one is that trading doesn't work. Even though it worked for me, mm-hmm. uh, I think it doesn't work. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, you should avoid trading stocks. Stocks are a genuinely long duration asset class. Mm-hmm. And trading them is exposing yourself to luck. And that will not always come your way. So that's mm-hmm. one. And second is that uh, I think after having done this for 35 years, my and I'm not being humble at all. I'm being very, very brutally honest. I really don't understand how markets work. Hmm. <laughs> they, they, they fox me. Yeah, of course. I don't want to. I don't want to say this too loudly yeah. because it will, it will, it will, it affects me. But hmm. now I'm, I'm able to accept this. That you know, I really don't understand. And uh, you have to. You every market cycle teaches you something along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, markets are a highly complex adaptive system. Um, which uh, which are constantly evolving. Markets are not a science. Mm-hmm. Market is not an art. Uh, science, you know, is something which explains. Uh, uh, it provides an explanation that is hard to vary and uh, uh, can be falsifiable. Mm-hmm. This is Karl Karl Popper's definition. Nothing in the market that I understand explains consistently is not hard to vary and uh, is testable. It cannot be falsified. So market is certainly not a science and it's not an art. You know, contrary to this popular uh, adage that beauty lies in the eye of the beholder, mm-hmm. uh, beauty beauty is actually objective because mm-hmm. 99% of us will find the same things beautiful. Mm-hmm. right? And that is why uh, nature is organized around Fibonacci numbers mm-hmm. because it's objective. And uh, the market has nothing to do with art also. It is, it's all psychology. Uh, 
and it's just riding cycles of greed fear and hope and uh, i don't think there's any model in the world can that can predict these cycles with any degree of accuracy yeah. so even though i am professionally involved in predicting market cycles and i do that with great amount of reticence and uh, and uh, understanding that i don't understand it Venice, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but uh, i think in the stock market you only win when you di- dis- disengage from market cycles and and just focus on long term investing yeah. i really like what you said uh, you said uh, you don't know how markets work and i think if you approach the market with that attitude you get to learn and not make a mistake by making assumptions which may not be valid anymore yeah. and i think uh, that in itself is a great learning it's, it gives you an opportunity to just learn more and hopefully take better decisions absolutely so there we have it the secret to rhythm's success <laughs> I know there is no secret. I don't know the secret myself. <laughs> I just think I've been very lucky. You've been lucky, and and, and you know you've said some things which are so so critical, right? Uh, wisdom comes from experiences. You can read all the books, but you know, value your experiences, learn from them, apply them, and above all, you know, approach the market as if you don't know how it works. I think I think that's that's the number one takeaway I have. It it just make it'll make you a better investor. Don't make assumptions. So with that rhythm thank you very much for talking to us I'm sorry we exceeded a little bit but uh, thank you for being patient and answering all our questions and uh, sharing all the great stuff that you did Thank you so much for having me thank you Wonderful thank you take care Thank you for listening to the investor hour I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general Be sure to write to me at info@equitymaster.com at That's info at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.